0: I had a dream about this place.
1: Then sort of yeah, map out the narrative that might uh, tell us that story. Then, well, we see that the first week after the assassination, you know, when the country is practically on the verge of collapse, I mean, important people had in some cases been moved to safe locations and others have been informed to prepare for an evacuation should this turn out to be the beginning of a foreign invasion. I remember reading one paper, like a class, like in, not classified, but internal. Uh, apparatus document where some minister is basically calling another minister, asking him to go to the window and listen if he hears tanks out in the streets, you know. Uh, Paranoia
0: is a, a fever pitch right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean that—that's really insane. Somehow, uh, you know, they're really sure, like that the Russian, <laughs> that the Soviet Union is is inside the capital city already. Like, well, yeah. they're not sure, but they are worried that that's taking place, and they're and worried enough to ask their colleagues to go up to the window and listen if they hear tanks outside. So, I mean, it is then in this milieu that the trajectory uh, of the official investigation and the general public narrative. Uh, follows and I mean this is yeah the media that we talked about obviously right uh, follows an all too common pattern then to those who are somewhat well versed in what it was that we just tried to describe and uh, I sort of try to make um, a mind map if you like like uh, that this pattern is made up of uh, two faces which in part includes two dual aspects
0: so this is this is the pattern of like a strategy of tension operation exactly
1: yeah yeah so the first phase is that of the pkk or the pkk which is the kurdish workers party and the so-called 33 year old now these two aren't directly related the pkk and the 33 year old to my knowledge Um, but they um as i'll explain like in a bit like If we once have this idea of a contradiction between the secret and the public police, we see how the secret police will much more favor a PKK lead or a PKK lead, uh, and the public police will much more favor the 33-year-old. And so then we also have a second phase. uh, After the failure of what we will tell you about, the Operation Alpha and Hans Holmer, that is the former head of the secret police who... You know, uh, takes over the investigation. More, I'll get to him. Uh, We will get to him. Um, His, uh, uh, mm, after his failure, the PKK lead still continues on, but the 33 year old has already been pushed out. And so he is replaced with Krista Pettersson.
0: I guess there's a question as well that's worth asking. So, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at how. The police investigated the murder, but also um, we're trying to find, like we said, we're trying to find somebody to blame for it. And we have to keep asking ourselves like, um, how much of this was part of this strategy of tension and how much of it was just the police being fucking incompetent and whatnot? And of course, what was the role of the uh, the security state in all this as well, the intelligence agencies? So a question that's worth bearing in mind is, Um, how likely do we think it is that the intention was always to blame the PKK? Um, Or do we think that the PKK were kind of improvised as a scapegoat in the fallout um, and that maybe this was not quite as well thought out as maybe some of the the outrages in Italy had been, you know?
1: So shall we again try to go through this like a little bit, uh, not hour by hour, but we will see, you know, we'll we'll try to provide a bit of a chronology. How then, uh, the image that the nation has to accept of you know as to why their prime minister had been murdered, uh, how this little by little falls into place. Then and then we will have a sort of conclusion to, to this to the question that uh, Matt just asked as to whether, you know, was this very much a planned intention of the PKK lead or is it something that they. Uh, you know, shoot from the hip with uh, because they've got nothing better to do.
0: We will see a divide emerge within the security state apparatus after the murder, like we've said. So the secret police will push the notion that the country's biggest enemy is leftist militant organizations. The public police wants to imprint um, on the consciousness of the the people of Sweden the image of a dangerous lone wolf killer. So at 6 a.m., Arne Ervel arrives at police headquarters and he is absolutely pissed off (laughs) because uh, Arne was the head of the National Murder Commission and he was considered to be the most competent murder investigator in Sweden. But somehow nobody anywhere within the hierarchy of the Stockholm police had contacted him about Olof Palme's death. He heard about it just by chance while he was listening to breakfast radio. What Arne did is bring a measure of calm to the chaos, and he began organizing an actual murder investigation instead of the aforementioned dog fucking that the cops had been engaging in before he arrived.
1: Yeah, and this is 6 a.m. the day after. So, you know, the murderer has had some time now to, you know, or the murderers or, yeah, you know, wh- whoever did it or, or you know, they've they've got some time. Uh, a bit of a head start so on the opposite side of Arne irvel uh, we have then Hans Holmier, f- former uh, secret police chief who, and, and I liked what Matt said when he found out about this oh, in the this, <laughs> Yeah. how this was the most Swedish thing that he had ever heard because Hans Holmier is at this moment uh, skiing in the mountains with his mistress uh, when he gets the news that uh, Palmer had been killed and uh, I'll never forgive Matt, but I really wanted to make sort of a living daylight opening to this episode with the James Bond thing, you know, when yeah, he jumps yeah. off the, when he gets off the cliff with the Union Jack, you know, like, oh, is he going to die? And then it's like, duh, duh, duh. <laughs> Um, well, it's but, a gigantic uh, swedish parachute yeah that you exactly and yeah. because yeah holmir's got a bit of the uh, the bond vibes right like all the women love him like he's supposed to be a really good looking guy right and he's right in a divorce now and he's got a mistress you know so you know a single good looking guy um and uh, uh <laughs> so uh you know when he hears about this he he was supposed to even to be in the uh, the Vasa Loppet, you know, one of those famous uh, uh, big skiing, uh, long distance uh, skiing uh, events that takes place once a year, you know, and uh, people from all over the world come, right? And it's, it's supposed to be in the footsteps of like uh, what our first king did or like yeah, the first, well... I'm there were kings before, but like the first uniting king was Vasa. And he supposedly I mean it's all lore, it's bullshit. <laughs> he didn't do that, I think, but he supposedly took that uh when he when he gathered his army to fight off the Danish uh, and, and Christian, the king of Denmark, he supposedly went. Uh, you know, he was the only one clever enough to not be invited to the a, a bloodbath uh, party in Stockholm, where the Christian basically killed the entire nobility of Sweden. And so then the king took off, you know, famously on a pair of skis and went up to Dalarna uh, to rally, like you know, the the true Swedes, like who would never fail, and uh, you know, to 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 take back what was lost by by the tyrant, the Danish tyrant. And this is where Hans Holmier is and this is where he, what he's supposed to do, you know. Like, so it's got a bit of, uh, you know, it's got, the story is already there <laughs> before uh, Hans Holmier starts making a story. But uh, so uh, who was he then? Well, Holmier was the chief constable of uh, Stockholm County, uh, now uh, that he's no longer the head of SEPO. Uh, What he uh, really excelled uh, at was polytricking and advancing his career. He was very loyal to the Social Democrats and was always networking. His former mentor, uh, Carl Persson, the chief chief of the National Police, has described Holmier's time at SAPO, uh, changed him from a loyal friend and competent investigator into a, quote, scheming undercover operative, end of quote.
0: So, Holmere arrived at the police headquarters at 11 o'clock, briefs himself on the situation, and he just took over. <laughs> and he held his first press conference at 12 noon. Can you imagine how angry you'd be if you are Arne? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you've yeah. already been left out of the loop once, and you're, like, the most qualified guy in any room you're in to investigate a yeah. murder. And now this dude just yeah. wanders in with a pair of skis. He's probably still got his, like, yeah. his fucking snowsuit Skiing on. Skiing outfit on. He's, yeah, yeah yeah, like the 80s hey style as well right with the neon yeah. colors and yeah his mistress is waiting in the car just smoking cigarettes
1: right, right right that's what i'm thinking like how do you have this much pathos like yeah because he's just spent a weekend with his mistress right like he you know within an hour he's already <laughs> holding his first press conference he's like, i'm well i'm well equipped to solve this okay we'll see about that
0: and there is every reason in the world to be suspicious about this, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, because he he took command of the murder investigation in what was basically a coup. Uh, he actually had no authority to supervise an operation of this nature, of this size and scale. And beyond anything else, he'd never even investigated a murder before. Yeah. So the obvious question is why was he allowed to take charge? And the answer is a combination of his political connections to the social Democrats and a very deferential attitude from his superiors and from his colleagues as well.
1: Yeah. So uh, for example, the secret police chief, another former secret police chief, uh, P.G. Vinge, he said uh, of uh, Holmer, and, and here we have, you know, this is person number two sort of telling us a little bit, uh, about who he was as a person well he said that yeah he was basically put in this possession as uh, quote a way for the social democrats to have sepo incorporated into their own sphere of influence end of quote
0: yeah because he'd already proven his loyalty, hadn't he by um making troublesome stories disappear as head of sepo he had yeah. troublesome yeah. stories for the government that
1: that's right yeah I mean, basically everything we talked about in the end when it got really dark in the north of Europe in the last episode, the uh, reason why, you know, more people weren't held accountable for that darkness was obviously that, you know, he was involved in covering up basically everything there. The IB scandal, the illegal telephone tapping, uh, you know, uh, gayer, the gayer involvement with the brothel and the, you know, possible pedophilia scandal. So yeah, Uh, well, I mean, we'll get a little bit more into uh, uh, Holmier, like how he managed to do that as well. Like, I mean, he's not a superman. There are other people involved as well, obviously. And, uh, but as soon as he gets there, experienced murder investigators, you know, they're pushed aside and the prosecutor's uh, ability to do the work they were legally entitled to do, um, that is to lead the investigation, was limited to, was limited in practice. It is clear that the government supported Mr. Meir uh, as head of the investigation. There is one person who lives with him at this time. Remember, like you know, he's he's going through a divorce with his wife, so he's basically hanging out with his uh, guy, like his his dude, uh, who is uh, Ebbe Carlsson. and he's a journalist, but he's just not any journalist. He also works for uh, uh, one of the big, uh, if not the biggest, uh, publishing company in Sweden. And he's a sort of unofficial propaganda minister uh, for the Social Democrats. And so, you know, he obviously also helped out, you know, earlier with covering up the IB scandal and, you know, the gayer and the brothel and everything like that. And he will also become instrumental in the second phase that we, you know, if we have this, the first phase when the PKK is the official lead, and then there's a second phase when Hans Olmier is, you know, put away from the uh, task force of the solving the murder basically uh, after his failure the PKK lead still continues underground um and you know oh, you know is through other channels it is still being told as a real story to the public and Abkosen is of course very much involved in this
0: yeah so Holmier's main idea is basically to claim that the PKK murdered Palme based on the link between PKK sympathizers and the murders of two defectors. We'll get to that in a second, but first, okay, why is the PKK such a big part of this story? So as we've already said, PKK, Kurdistan Workers' Party, left wing. So we'll just offer a brief historical digression here. Right. Sweden was the first Scandinavian state to recognise the Turkish Republic, and it signed a uh, what they called a friendship agreement with Turkey in 1924. So this is uh, just as Ataturk is making all his reforms and whatnot. Now Sweden and Turkey, up to the present day, still consider each other allies. You know, Sweden has advocated uh, that Turkey should join the EU. Turkey is. Uh, it's a little bit ambivalent about the prospects of Sweden joining NATO, but we don't need to get into all the reasons for that. Anyway, in the 1980s, the Turkish state had launched this really harsh and violent crackdown on the Kurds. Um, and I suppose you could say, when isn't it launching a harsh <laughs> and violent crackdown on the Kurds? Yeah. But it, it's interesting because, you know, it's like guerrilla and, you know, the Turkish deep state was like running this, you know, the gray wolves and everything, their version of Gladio. So yeah. Sweden became a refuge for Kurdish dissidents fleeing Turkish state repression. And it wasn't only PKK members who made it to Sweden. Uh, there were Kurds who were against both the Turkish state and the PKK. They also fled to the country. And then in 1984 and 1985, two ex-PKK members, and forgive me if I screw these pronunciations up, but uh, they were called Enver Atta and Semir Gungo. They were assassinated on the orders of Abdullah Öcalan, and of course we'll know that Öcalan is like the the head of the PKK. So Sweden designated the PKK as a terrorist organization, and it's fair to say that this was probably more as a way to appease the Turks than anything else. So ocalans ex-wife, Kessia Yedirim, she also lives in Sweden. She was exiled from the PKK by Abdullah, and she founded a splinter group in Sweden. Now, interestingly, when Ossam was arrested and tried for treason in 1999, he actually said that his ex-wife was behind the Olaf Palme assassination. But I don't think he was. That's some accusing. Yeah, that's quite a big accusation. Is that I don't think he's right. I think that's divorced guy energy. To be honest. Holmier then was very keen to push the idea that Palme's murder was a revenge attack for the arrest of the PKK assassins who'd clipped Atar and Gungo. Uh, Holmier also had the government's backing to pursue this theory despite a complete lack of evidence. And he made it his mission to paralyze the investigation with this
1: theory for months. Fucked it right up. Right. It's basically for the entire year well until the end of the year at least uh yeah and uh so our good friend the uh investigative investigative journalist young Yu, uh you know that's a man who had been uh, imprisoned, imprisoned for revealing the secret anti-communist ib organization from the last episode well He put aside his critical work of Olaf Palme, who is now dead, and instead argued that the police were, as usual, conspiring against immigrants and leftists. Guillou made Holmier appear as a self absorbed conspiratorial buffoon, which, of course, is how Holmier likes to think about Uh, (laughs) Guillou. But uh, now the tables are turned then, you know, he carries out his uh, reconnaissance work against the Kurds systematically over the year, but was constantly under attack from the media, uh, prosecutors, and it seemed parts of his own organization. According to him, uh, as he starts building up the case for his uh, Operation Alpha, Operation Alpha, which is like, it's a name suitable for this guy, I guess. You know, we already talked a little bit about like his pathos. So, of course, he's got to have an operation called Operation Alpha. But actually, I looked up, like, do you know, there are two other like famous Operation Alpha. It's not a really good track record. The first Operation Alpha, as far as I understood, was uh, a Nazi operation in the mid-1940s, like 42-41, by, well, uh, you know, Nazi Yugoslav... uh, um, Sympathizers, or you know, like uh, you know, volunteer SS uh, divisions fighting the Croatian partisans. I think uh, in in or in um, Bosnia Herzegovina, uh, and that was called Operation, uh, the hunting down of leftist partisans in Yugoslavia. Let's put it that way. That was called uh, the Operation Alpha. The other Operation Alpha. This was really interesting. I have to get deeper into this later. The other Operation Alpha was basically the U.S.-inspired plan uh, of backing the the Guomindang in Yunnan. So, the little I know about this, I've been to Kunming, for example, uh, the capital uh, over there. Uh, I mean, this is basically where, long even after the the war is won by the communists in and Mao in, in in China, the this is where like the the CIA's uh, Heroin operations still sort of center uh, the last foot they still have in, in Red China uh, with the together with the Guomindang, and so this was the other Operation Alpha. So those two pretty weird operations. One, I mean, this this was in nineteen forty four, and the other one is 1941-42. So I mean, they must have known <laughs> they must have known that what what they were doing by picking that name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, his idea, though, was that, you know, in the worst case scenario, if no shooter was caught, uh, you know, at least they can establish that the PKK was behind the murder. And so he launched, he started to launch anti-PKK raids and aimed to arrest 58 people. Now, the stumbling block for Holmier was the chief prosecutor, Klaus uh, Zemi. Uh, I don't really know how to pronounce that name, actually. Klaus Z- zemi who, uh, well, I mean, this guy, he knew he was about to retire, <laughs> so not giving a fuck about the decorum, was openly critical of Holmier's uh, theory and methods. Uh, Zemmier even compared the planned operation to how the military in Chile in 1973 rounded up the opposition members uh, at a football stadium in Santiago.
0: Chile is going to reappear in this um, story as well.
1: Yeah, uh, Hol- Holmier then... Still received uh, somehow the Swede of the Year award uh, from the news program Rapport in uh, December. Eventually, then he it was agreed that Holmier could carry out Operation Alpha, but they were only allowed to bring in twenty people for questioning. And uh, Holmier managed to arrest and interrogate nineteen PKK members on the twentieth of January nineteen eighty-seven. So you know that's right. You know the beginning of the next year. So it's around. Christmas there they can't really do it, you know, during Christmas because he's been pushing everybody to do overtime for an entire year, basically, and so they do it as soon as they can. Uh, and at the press conference, uh, Zemir was again dismissive of uh, Holmir, Zemir. That's the, the yeah the prosecutor, right? And announced that all the suspects would be freed uh, for lack of evidence. Now, I know that. Some of this still kept on going. Uh, for example, because it was a really strange law, it was this terrorist, uh, uh, the, f- the first Swedish terrorist law came like in 73, I think it was, and it was this law that they used. And this is a w- really racist law because basically you couldn't be a s- Swedish terrorist. This was like a law that uh, it was designed so that only uh uh immigrants could be prosecuted in this way and so they had something called commune arrest which meant that you couldn't leave like your municipality uh for years i think some people were under commune arrest and you know even though they were freed and there was no evidence you know so yeah it was a very it's a very strange law like if one wants to sort of you know if if one likes the judicial aspect of like the development of, you know, the repressive apparatuses around this time, I think it's an interesting one, you know, but it's this is way before, you know, things like the Patriot Act and things like that. But there are, you know, tidbits all over the world that you can start to see, you know, what they were uh, pulling at. And um, and I think, yeah, that, that, that law is probably a, a good uh, thing to take a look at in a peaceful Sweden, like, yeah, social, you know, democratic heaven. After this, he's left politically weak and humiliated, obviously. And he became the figure of ridicule in the press. It's, it's funny how quickly they turn on him, right? You know, from being man of the year, then one failed operation, and they're like, "We always knew he was terrible." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. Now, uh, then, uh, two weeks later, on the fifth of February, Hans Omer resigned as leader of the investigation, and a month later, he resigned as county police chief. But uh, I will not. <laughs> I will not go to sleep uh, crying about that. <laughs>
0: No great loss, to be fair. He's still got his mistress and his uh, mountain retreat and shit. So, But yeah, the PKK trail did not end here, uh, despite the lack of evidence of their involvement. And this, to me, is most suggestive of some kind of determination on the part of the secret state to, yeah, effect some kind of strategy of tension. Plans were being made to pursue this completely outside the law and control mechanisms of democracy, like any good strategy of tension. So the uh, the aforementioned Ebi uh, Carlsen eventually set up a private intelligence unit, yet another one in Sweden. <laughs> so I think we're up to like 50 at this point um, to, um, to take over from Holmier. But Holmier was still retained as a kind of informal consultant. So remember this guy has been disgraced in the press. Mm. He's a jerk to his colleagues, or he certainly should be. Mm-hmm. He's resigned twice um, in the space of a month mm-hmm. from two different positions. And yet he's still being retained here yeah. to give advice and, and strategize with them.
1: I'm not sure if they still live together. Yeah. Even. I'm, I'm maybe not, by now the mistress has become a wife and he doesn't have to crash with Eb anymore.
0: Yeah. And this unit... That they set up. It included some of Holmier's former bodyguards. It had two sergeants from the Swedish police. Had a Nazi policeman and arms dealer. It had Sweden's ambassador to France and uh, a former Social Democratic minister, Carl Lidbom, who was a financier. And it also directly involved members of the government. So we've kind of elided including names there because we're very aware that there are a lot of names to remember already. But, you know, this is just to give you an idea of how shady this group was. Now, one of Holmeer's former bodyguards was actually stopped with um, prohibited surveillance devices at customs in Helsinki in June of 1988. And this led to the resignation of the Minister of Justice, Anna Greta León. Am I saying that right? Yeah, that's right. She's a shady woman. She is extremely shady uh, because among other things, she'd written a letter of recommendation that would give Ebi Carlson access to the European security services. Uh, she had massively exceeded her powers as a minister here. She was well out of school.
1: I think uh, Anna Greta Leon, actually, she was, uh, I me and Sebi started looking into her a little bit more now. Like She was also a part of the You know, that aforementioned terrorist law, when it was set up about 10 years earlier, or like in the beginning of the 70s, she was a part of that. Yes, And as we will see later um, uh, with the South Africa lead, she also seemed to have worked for the uh, uh, Social Democratic uh, Party in South Africa uh, in London in 1963 in the summer of 1963. So I don't know what that means, but she is shady. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean... Yeah,
0: and that's a pretty scary collection yeah. of words, you know. Yeah. Uh, Swede, shady, South Africa, London. Nothing good can come of that.
1: I don't think so. And I mean, there are some other people involved in that group as well, you know, uh, that are connected to, uh, yeah, the, that police uh, officer we talked about before, Östling, right? Uh, and with the weapon connection arms dealer and things like that uh, yeah the the one who worked who had a friend who worked for the resource stab within the military yeah
0: and the things keep in mind we'll be covering a lot of this stuff in the episodes to come um but all of this is bound up in what we could call a larger conspiracy that involves uh, the arms trade iran contra and this swedish milieu of industrialists um sometimes denoted with this umbrella term of the united intelligence agencies but again we're not there
1: yet no we're not but we're we're starting to see the contours let's say the web because uh, names will keep reappearing
0: So in addition to the PKK, there was also the famous
1: 33-year-old. So uh, if we remind ourselves of this dual aspect then that, you know, they need a, a communist militant group, you know, that's what the, what the secret police need. But the, the regular public police, of course, they need a crazy loan, you know. Gunman, right? They they don't want to have more detectives like working in offices trying to network and map out, you know, large militant groups. You know, they want more police officers with weapons on the street uh, to make sure that these uh, lone killers don't strike. Uh, that, that's what they want, right? So Victor Gunnarsson uh, it is unlikely this guy was the killer, but the circumstances around him are so suspicious that he may be, you know, I, I think at least maybe a patsy present at the scene of the crime um, at the time of the murder. Uh, we should remember, you know, that Lisbeth Palmer initially speaks of two perpetrators before, he, she, before she changes her story later. Now, uh, Victor, he turned out to be a member of the European Labour Party, the EAP, which is, you know, a right-wing political organization, despite this very leftist name. And contradictions like that, you know, it shouldn't come as you know, it will, it will should it should come as, come as less of a surprise than that this is the Swedish branch of the LaRouche cult, uh, which he'd been kicked out of in nineteen eighty-five. We're
0: building up quite a list here. You know, we've got like all the classics are playing on the jukebox at once. Now we've got a member of this hard right political organization that has a fake leftist name. And it's also the Swedish branch of, yeah, the LaRouche cult. I mean,
1: fucking hell. Yeah. Why is he there? (laughs) What's the scene of the crime? (laughs) (laughs) What's he doing? Yeah. So, and I mean, it gets better with this guy because sources claim that he was at the, you know, the same cinema as the prime minister. Uh, He was unable to account for his whereabouts and has apparently lied to the police on a number of crucial points. Uh, He owned a gray cap and a coat similar to the killers. killers. Uh, As an employee of several different private security companies, he had received weapons training and knew how to handle a revolver. He was observed entering the cinema about 10 to 12 minutes after the shooting, but half an hour after the film had started. So that kind of gives you maybe some Oswald vibes. He was uh, initially arrested on March 8th, questioned and released, uh, arrested again on the 12th and charged on the 17th. And so this is from the state channel SVT. The day after the murder, March 1, a young woman tipped off the police that she had been at the Monchery Café on Kungsgatan a few blocks from the murder scene the night before. Together with some friends, she had then met a man who spoke hatefully about Ulf Palme. Uh, additional tips about the man came in the next few days, including from a woman who reported that the 33-year-old said that, quote, blood will flow, end of quote, because Olaf Palme would have been on the KGB's execution lists. There was uh, also tips that the 33-year-old was a member of a political extremist organization. Uh, which could be the LaRouche cult, of course, and that uh, he possessed weapons of the type used in the murder. It was also claimed that the 33-year-old would have stayed next to Palmer's home and that he suddenly had money to buy an apartment over there. In addition, the 33-year-old would have told uh, others that he was trained by the FBI and the CIA. Uh, a house search was carried out in his home where, among other things, clothes and anti palmer material were seized. Now, during the following days, a number of extensive interrogations were carried out with the man without anything new really emerging. At the same time, the police received additional information that strengthened the suspicion. One of the original informants said that three weeks before the murder, the 33-year-old said that, quote, Olof Palme is on the death list, end of quote, and that, quote, again, blood will flow in the streets of Stockholm. It will be a bloodbath, end of quote. An investigation also showed that igniter particles were found on the jacket that the 33-year-olds uh, reportedly wore on the night of the murder. It could not be ruled out that the particles or- originated from ammunition used in the murder.
0: If you want to talk about JFK echoes and Lee Harvey Oswald echoes, actually, um, this notion of this guy turning up in different places, talking shit about Ulf Palme, and- you know, talking up the threat of the KGB and whatnot. It reminds me so much of the, uh, you know, the, the fake Oswald yeah. story, you know, when different people calling themselves Lee Harvey Oswald were, um, visiting shooting ranges and embassies and, you know, t- talking up how much they hated JFK and whatnot.
1: For no reason whatsoever. Just letting the world know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sharing some
0: thoughts and feelings. <laughs> yeah, And this is the other thing as well is the fact that, uh, Gunnarsson makes a point of saying that he's on the KGB's execution list, Olaf Palme, It to me, it feeds into more of that strategy of tension, blame the left, you know, blame the left at all times.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, not only is he like, you know, uh, that, you know, they think that Palme is a KGB agent, but now he's also like, you know, then a made uh, agent or something. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't go together, obviously. Like, it's a very... Strange, but they it, this this theory is really prevalent among all the suspected uh right wingers i mean it's almost so common among them that one wonders you know ha, if they all agreed upon this and, and they are not, many of them are not supposed to know each other. they only have like you know their right wingness in common sort of, but they personally don't seem to have a connection uh, some of them do of course, but uh yeah
0: one of the entries in Victor's address book caught the investigator's attention because he had the phone number of someone called Charles G.S.S. Two weeks before the murder of Olaf Palme, and bear with us here, because this will make sense in the end. Ivan B., uh, he was a former mercenary. He'd called someone called Inga Borfner, right? She was the social minister of Stockholm, and he told her that a certain Charles Morgan had contacted him. Charles Morgan was an American intelligence agent and he was a Burgess employee of this GSS, which was a large American corporation that at the time had several hundred thousand employees. Charles had offered Ivan B. two million pounds to assassinate Olaf Palme. So, in other words, this suggested that there was some level of CIA involvement here because this uh, company, GSS, is suspected of being. Uh, connected to the CIA in some way. So Ivan B. was moonlighting as a doorman at Hotel Famous in Stockholm, which was also a GSS-owned enterprise, but he declined the offer to assassinate Olaf Palme. GSS had also previously been associated with the CIA in Chile, and there we go again, in 1973, when the, you know, the democratically elected uh, Salvador Allende was overthrown by uh, the military junta in a coup d'etat and was replaced by Pinochet. The involvement of the GSS here is alleged to have consisted of financial support for the operation, and it was also apparently motivated by Allende's nationalization of Chile Superfax, which was a gss owned Chilean monopoly company. Um, but things get stranger because Victor's lawyer, um, Olaf Avidsen, he had to write a submission to the ombudsman on behalf of his client you know once Victor was arrested for the, the murder of Olaf Palme. So this is kind of like a profile of him and he decided to reach out to figures in the Swedish far right who might have known Victor to get more information about him you know given his affiliation to various right-wing groups. So the first person that Arvidsson contacted was someone called Ulf. Hamacher. Now, Hamacher is a deeply, deeply spooky guy. He was a lawyer, a politician. He was a leading figure in the Swedish National Confederation until it split in the 1980s. Uh, Check out the last episodes for more information about that. He was also the chairman of...
1: (laughs) Yeah, Ungenskanska klubben.
0: There we go. Yeah. it was a conservative men's club. He was highly active as well in the World Anti-Communist League. And he also founded the Catholic Order of St. Michael, which was a major force inside an organization called the Swedish Chilean Society, which had been created in 1976. Now, one of this group's strategies, the Swedish Chilean Society, and it was overseen by Hamacher and others, it was the what's called the Irregular Adoption of as many as 1,700 Chilean babies and children throughout the 1970s and 1980s. The peak years were the years between Olaf Palme's terms Um, and with the intention that this would forge closer ties between Sweden and Chile and soften the Pinochet regime's image in Scandinavia. You know, look, they can't be ruthlessly oppressing their people. They're letting these babies find a new, happier life in Social democratic Sweden, you know, how bad can they be? So I found this on a Spanish website called uh, Interferencia. Quote, the Sweden Chile society was the entity in charge of generating the pro-dictatorship campaign, acting as a bridge between the Pinochet regime and the Swedish adoption center. This organization is described as right-wing extremist. Its director is an important member in the Swedish pro-Nazi party, the National Union, and its secretary at the time, was an activist within the fascist New Sweden movement. As if all of this isn't fucking crazy enough, Hamaker is also said to have passed information to um, Seppo about the PKK, while Holmere, who was himself a former boss at Seppo, had been pursuing this theory. So basically he's feeding uh, tip-offs and leads to bolster the PKK theory. Hamacher also told Avitsen that he didn't know Gunnarsson personally, but that Victor's reputation on the Swedish far right was that of a, as he described it, a free spirit and a fool. And Hamacher also supplied information concerning errors made in the police investigation of Victor. And then, apropos of nothing, he offered this incredibly elaborate theory uh, to uh, the press And to the police about how the assassination of Olaf Palm may have been carried out using a team of five hitmen, with three acting as spotters and two as gunmen. I need a cigarette after that.
1: I mean, I didn't even finish reading this when you put this in the notes. And now, I don't know, man. Like, you remember I told you about this strange thing about the glasses that we agreed upon was some, you know, it's one of these tidbits that you. Come across in research time and time again where you just don't know what to think about it. But now with this fucking Hamacher appearing to be some kind of, you know, you know, false, you know, trace, <laughs> uh, you know, like I am thinking Hansel and Gretel or something, you know, like he putting out these weird tidbits that are not supposed to make sense. This makes way more sense. Yeah, he's a disinformation agent. Yeah, because the the thing is that two, dif- uh, like I don't know how many people in total, but I've read uh, at least two who directly cites this uh, talk about Glenn Miller glasses the man refers to himself having worn glenn miller glasses and some other person who talked about the wokitoki uh, man on the uh, gamla stan subway station and so that you know that's another part of uh, 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 stockholm and most likely could not have been The Skandia man because he was either at Scandia or he was out having lunch, or yeah, yeah unlikely that it's him. Yet somebody over there makes the exact same reference uh, in a police report saying that somebody uh, with Glenn Miller-like glasses were talking in a walkie-talkie and seemed to be following uh, Olaf Palme and Lisbeth Palme. Then uh, after the murder, some Glenn Miller. Looking glasses are found with the exact same, uh, you know, prescription and, and a very particular prescription that uh, the Scandia man had, and then it was found out that they actually belonged to Bing Bing Bing, a Chilean right winger who pretended to be a communist oh, f- <laughs> and now this makes fucking sense I had I, I was like this is a ridiculous thing why should we keep this in here now this makes sense man what
0: I mean to me it goes back to first principles this was something that I've been sort of developing this theory more and more and when we did the octopus series it really crystallized it for me and, and Ben as we were going along there which is the cover-up doesn't work. There's no point trying to cover anything up. But what does work is letting everything out there. Don't just plant fake clues at the crime scene. Plant real evidence as well. Like Don't just give disinformation to the press and to the police. Tell them real things as well. Give them so many truths that it becomes indistinguishable from the chaff, from the white noise. Just flood the airwaves with absolute chaos. Let it all hang out there. And it will drive people insane trying to pick their way through it, you know?
1: Yeah, quantity over quality. Like, don't try to make something elaborate, just flood. I think this must be, you know, essential to the strategy of tensions as a whole as well, right? Because when you start to try, you know, you try to start making sense as to why certain people were killed and, you know, what kind of like, you know, intrigues might they have been involved in, we find time and time again that it doesn't make sense. And that's the point, yeah. you know, that you're supposed to feel like, you know, is this an, you know, ultimate gang war, <laughs> you know, within like what kind of circles and uh, among what kind of people, you know, like it's just you you keep seeing ghosts because there is no, you know, flesh to be put on them, and so of course, yeah, it's
0: it's sort of um not to get too far off on a tangent here, but it also sort of links into something that um, friend of the show. Robert Scavala says quite a lot, which is uh, he hates it, he hates it, and I understand why, because I hate it as well, which is when somebody says, conspiracies can't be real because somebody would talk about them, right? And what he always says, and he is 100% correct, is people always fucking talk about the shit but because there's so much other information around it it just gets ignored it's still just one part of a, a huge universe a constellation of information you know
1: and and what yeah many times you're just left with this sort of question you know like what i mean what what should we you know what what should you do then like what what can you do <laughs> you know like what can you do? yeah I think rather the question should not be like you know oh the the conspiracy can't be true because nobody talks. No, it's rather that even though people do constantly talk, what we see rather than you know official investigations or trials, is pretty long lists of people going missing again and again who who wanted to say something. I mean, there's no case again of these you know ones that we're pointing or that you just pointed towards where we don't also find you know an appendix of mysterious deaths of people who have had another story. Uh, And we will of course have one for this uh, for this uh, murder as well. Of course, people talk.
0: Mm. did the investigation into Victor Gunnarsson actually lead anywhere?
1: No, it does not, uh, as we will find <laughs> out. Victor Gear, um, yeah, they tried to hang the entire prosecution on the testimony of a taxi driver. So sometime between 23.30 and uh, 00.30 on the night of the murder, the driver had been stopped uh, by a man on Döbelsgatan in the neighborhood of the murder scene the taxi driver's account was very dramatic uh, a man ran up nervously to the window on the passenger side of the car panting and stressed he pulls on the door to enter the car saying quote drive me anywhere as long as you drive away from the area end of quote uh, the taxi driver then refuses obviously uh, and and uh, uh, Uwe Mo and Gustafsson, two experienced detectives, go to, this, go to his home and show him a photo, the taxi driver's home, and show him a photo of a number of people, including Victor Gea. The taxi driver cannot clearly identify him, so the next day he is taken to the police station for a classic electoral confrontation.
0: Yeah, and so the cops release uh, Victor, and a few months later, the preliminary investigation is closed. And Despite this, the police still tap his phone for a very long time, and he probably appeared as a strong suspect in the police files for a few more years uh, thereafter. The way that Victor was dismissed, it could be, you know, just a mistake by the police or it could be a deliberate fuck up to let one of the more well-connected scapegoats off the hook. Uh, But we'll never know because Victor G. ended his days in 1993 in the woods at Deep Gap in North Carolina. There, he was found lying naked wearing nothing but a watch and a ring in a clearing shot in the head. Close range, and an American police officer who denied it was later convicted of the offense. Apparently, the killing was supposed to be over a love triangle situation. And there ends the story of Victor Gunnarsson.
1: So it does, so it does. Seems like a pretty straightforward execution to be honest mm-hmm.
0: yeah. yeah yeah i don't buy that love triangle thing nah, at all. me neither it's, it's, especially given the larouche ties
1: yeah um yeah and i think it's interesting you know the way that he's dismissed right like this way that he had uh that the taxi driver has already been shown a photo of victor gear that's why you know the testimony of the taxi driver is useless the thing is this is not a one-time occurrence this is the exact same thing that will happen Later, with the next uh, scapegoat or Patsy character of the second phase, when we have Krista Peterson instead of Victor Gea as the lone killer, he is dismissed. Dismissed, as we will see later, in pretty much the same way. And so, which also gives rooms for thought. You know, like how can they make the same fuck up twice?
0: Tell me about the police trail.
1: All right. So the police trail. Then, where uh, where do we find ourselves in this mess? Well, we have our old friend, uh, C.G. Östling. You know, people who are named uh, Carl Gustav, they're never good people, (laughs) (laughs) like like Jung, for example. They're always always up to some Nazi shit. And uh, he's a hot name in the investigation from the start. At the time of the murder, he was serving in the Norrmalm's police notorious Atur. He is the police's weapons expert and also... Has uh, a sideline as an arms dealer
0: is ETA like a SWAT team or something or an armed mm-hmm. unit
1: right so uh, what, what this becomes is the so-called baseball league uh, which was a kind of uh, uh, it was supposed to be an anti-street violence uh, group uh, that didn't have to wear a uniform like a civil, civil uh, you know undercover public police or, or how to put it and the thing is that this was organized before uh, by Hans Olmer. And so these people who were in this uh, baseball league, they were all connected to uh, Hans Holmere in this way. And many of the others, you know, because Oestling is sort of the, the head guy in this group. And it becomes a kind of, well, it, it becomes a, a a Nazi faction within the police, you know, because they have like, you know, authority to do uh police work when not wearing a uniform. So they can, you know, claim you know, they they'll they'll just beat up anybody in the street. And, you know, and we find actually that they even uh tortured somebody to death uh because they they had these rooms that weren't at the police, you know, heads quarter where they, you know, could put people in officially to, you know, make sure that they weren't a danger to to the immediate let, let's say that they you know they have often these uh, rooms closely connected to uh, like a metro station or something like that you know and so if it's a drunk you know maybe they pull him in there just to make sure that you know he's not you know until they can get him to the headquarter but in practice it becomes kind of you know torture chambers of these uh,
0: like black sites almost
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah like micro yeah. black sites in the middle of stockholm and uh yeah and we have at least i yeah i think the we have at least one uh verified account of them having tortured somebody to death uh in 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 one of these uh micro black sites then
0: just out of curiosity Mm
1: -hmm. um
0: when you said baseball league were these guys actually like part of a a work baseball team or is that like a nickname that was given yeah,
1: to them yeah they, they get this nickname because they all wear baseball caps as a right. kind of okay. uh, yeah as part of their you know the only uniformal thing that they have so that they can tell each other apart i guess uh, when they're yeah and when they're in the civil and so the, and this is still a telltale sign kind of like a funny people often say that when you wear those kinds of cap in sweden uh that you know that you look like a civil police now <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> right, so okay. yeah, it's become a bit of a lore as well, this part. And so uh, uh, having had an appendectomy uh, the week before the murder, and so he's still in the hospital, but mm-hmm. he leaves the hospital on the day of the murder against the doctor's orders, you know, just to go and to be closer to, to the uh, well, the event, I guess, that is about to happen. And he has no alibi for the night of the murder. Östling is uh, questioned as early as August 1986 about what he was doing on the night uh, when Prime Minister Olaf Palme was murdered. This is because several tips about his right-wing extremism and hatred of Palme have been received. At the beginning of 1988, he was involved in a raid by Helsingborg Customs for smuggling unauthorized listening devices linked to the Eber Carlson affair where the old pkk trail was to be re-established so you know we remember we touched upon this mm-hmm. guy before and uh, on the 19th of July 1988 a sling was questioned again because a search of his house revealed that he had a number of weapons and ammunition including bullets of the same caliber as those allegedly used to kill Palma
0: you were telling me as well um just off mic that Yeah, weapons and ammunition doesn't quite cover the stash (laughs) that this guy had yeah
1: yeah they had like you know rocket launcher grenades grenades. and uh uh, they found an ss helmet in there and a lot of like nazi paraphernalia as well
0: so if you've Um, got rocket launchers and grenades and nazi paraphernalia that's because you mm. are stocking up in case i don't know you need to stay behind Guys, uh,
1: yeah, keep that's, on mine. yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, it will be a reoccurring um, thing. Um, now, so a number of postcards were also found there, including a mysterious uh, railway track that is getting hotter and hotter. No, sorry. So a number of postcards were also found there, including a mysterious quote. Uh, yeah, so this was written on the postcard quote railway track that is getting hotter and hotter, end of quote. And where Östling and his arms dealer partner Ingvar Grundborg are seen giving the Hitler salute in a Jewish cemetery. And so, yeah, yeah, it's just a night out, right? <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> <Fuck it all. laughs> and then uh, uh, a terrified colleague of Mr. Östling, and so this is one of the tips we have against uh, uh, him. And so one of his colleagues at the Normans Police Guard District 1, uh, that is VAC District 1, comes in with the following information in a letter. He has previously been afraid to talk about the incident because, quote, they are dark blue and brown, end of quote, Uh, that they have, quote, histories of violence, end of quote, behind them, and that, quote, they have good contacts with the police management. And as we know, even with the secret police then via Holmer, You know, that's not the only tip that that comes in uh, to uh, uh, or about Östling. And as you will recall from before, you know, like all these tips about any police was directly sent to uh, the secret police for some yeah. reason
0: so they're controlling all the information that's coming in from Ex- witnesses and leads and yeah informants
1: so even though they don't have an official title of a police lead they seem to have had an unofficial title because everything that was categorized as part of the police lead were sent to the secret police so you know there's a little bit of a double you know what do we i don't know what to call it but yeah you you can think of this as you like as you like to say so six months after uh the palmer murder uh i was in charge of a radio car so this is you know him still talking now i was to take a transport from the police station to the american embassy of all places right mm-hmm. <laughs> the people to be transported turned out to be uh Okebring who organized Nazi meetings with uh, marching music and speeches for extreme right-wing circles within the Stockholm police, and Östling? so seem to be you know two, the two top guys within the uh, Nazi fa- faction within the police. And uh, he goes on, both were in civilian clothes, excited and sober. They said that they knew who the Palme murderer was and that the murderer could never be found. This was said in a crude manner, both are known to hate palme end of quote so i mean that's not just any tip
0: uh, yeah that's so spe- like so specific is that
1: yeah yeah and uh you know there's also this talk about there having been a big party on the night after the murder where they were like you know police toasting together and you know uh, somebody also made a call during the night uh, to another Nazi police saying something like uh, the dog got what he deserved. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of, uh, you know, tips about uh, people celebrating basically uh, this uh, event. And so then we get another tip about Estling from a taxi driver who contacts the police. Uh, he has done so on two previous occasions, but has not been contacted himself. And so we can see, you know, systematically he, he's being put to the side. And he, says that this, uh, he, and he says this according to the documents handed over. Quote, a telephone call was received by KVC in which the complainant uh, thought he recognized a taxi passenger as the picture of former police officer and arms dealer Östling published in the newspaper recently on the night of the murder. Uh, UL, that, that is the taxi driver, Picked up the above mentioned man together with another man in his thirties at the junction of Malmchilnadskatan, Mr. Samuel Skatan, about four hundred to five hundred meters from the murder scene. UL, the taxi driver, estimates that this happened about 45 minutes after the murder. The drive went to Dunesgaten, very close to Esling's home, uh, and both seemed nervous and behaved strangely. End of quote.
0: Ursling was actually interviewed by other cops, but he was never questioned with regards to these two specific tips. Now, others might have been involved in a Swedish far-right support cell on the night of the murder. The following names that we're going to go through were all members of this cell, including Ursling, um And this cell was called the Stockholm Defense Shooting Association, which was a group of about 18 people with police and military backgrounds who trained in real command and street fighting. Anyone who's listened to the uh, Belgium episodes of the show, you'll hear some very interesting echoes and resonances here. So shooting associations in a country like Sweden with pretty strict weapons laws, um, now, according to the little that we do know about the stay-behind networks, shooting associations are how the first cells of Gladio were organized. You know, it was one of the the first methods they used to find people who had the means and the motivation to uh, be recruited into the stay-behind networks. Anti Afsan is there. Uh, he is the man who was recognized by a Finnish woman a few minutes before the murder. He was standing in the Dekarima Kana at the murder scene with a walkie talkie in one hand and a weapon in the other. Is this the guy who the girl Katja recognized from the gym?
1: That's right, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Ingvar Grundborg is there, uh, an arms dealer, companion of Estling, who we talked about before, who at the time of the murder was employed at the Swedish telecommunications agency and had the opportunity to bug of Palme.
0: There's also Klaus Jöfält. He was a police colleague of Ersling, and he also was a great Palme hater. Uh, he was released from the 3230 police bus on David Bargeris Gata to move his wrongly parked car, and he found himself directly in the killer's escape route just as the shots were fired down at Svierwegen.
1: Then we have uh, Ulf Helene, who should also have been on duty in the... Uh, 3230 patrol bus, but who accidentally requested, uh, quote unquote, internal service and becomes the one who triggers an obvious delayed murder alarm. So he is moved basically from being a man on the street to then, even though you know, that's the thing, right? These are all or many of these people are all the team who usually serve in a specific police bus. And now they got one of their guys moved over into the internal service. And he is involved in what we discussed in the very beginning of the episode, the intentional delays and, and things like that. Uh,
0: we also have Shiel uh in the picket bus 3230. He was the one who let Gio go free on the hill where the murderer came up the stairs, you know, while fleeing the crime scene, uh, while he let the picket bus wait, hidden in a gateway.
1: Then there is Per Arvidsson and uh, another FMV that is, you know, the Swedish Defense Material Administration, like the resource stab of the army. Uh, employee and friend of Westling, who visits him on the night of the murder and is the one who is accidentally called in to examine the murder bullets first of all, even before the police. This was what we touched upon earlier, right?
0: Yeah. And then we have Sonny Björk who is the police officer hired by Holmere and the Palme Investigation as a weapons expert. So the reason why the policemen appear and why they've been questioned in relation to the investigation generally consists of being in one way or another connected to far right-wing national socialist factions within the police that voiced extreme hatred and sometimes a will to kill the, uh, the prime minister. Or it's because... Some of them were actually there on the night when it happened. Um, The most famous of these allegations is a large police dinner party, which Marcus mentioned earlier, which is when a toast was held in honor of the outcome, as well as uh, this mysterious phone call between two police officers on the night of the murder, uh, saying that Palme had received what was coming to him. So other theories surfaced as the months and then the years ground on and we will be covering these in more detail in the next few episodes. So if you are sat there listening to this and you are angry that we've not touched on your favorite theory yet, don't worry, it's probably coming.
1: Or if you feel uh, very confused and you don't really know what to make of this, you know, police lead and, you know, wondering if what, you know, maybe it is a cog that connects into something else, you know. I kind of, cottage industry
0: of amateur sleuths uh called marcus yeah so that's kind of like the swedish word for gumshoe i suppose it grew up around the Olaf palme murder case and their theories would eventually expand to implicate everyone and everything from the cia to south african intelligence to uh, andrei tarkovsky that that's a real theory that some people have by the way um To arms dealers, to neo-Nazis, to Yugoslavia, and and more besides.
1: Yeah. Even that Parliament had AIDS as well, you know, and that it was like... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen that. For now, we're going to close with a look at Krista Pettersson, just to get him out of the way as we, you know, dig into more serious and deeper things. Because... Pettersson, as we've said, uh, you know, he was nothing but a low-level crook with a violent history and mental health problems, who was uh, nursing abuse uh, and drug addiction. In 1988, the cops arrested him for the murder of Ulf Palme. Uh, by now, the investigation was being handled by Hans Ulve Bro, who'd succeeded Ulf Carlson. Uh, this was the third chief investigator the case had in two years. Technically four, if you include Justa Wellander's hours-long stint on the first night before Holmeer took charge. Lisbeth Palme picked Pettersson out of a police lineup and three of his drinking buddies said that not only was he known to hang around the neighborhood where the Palmes were shot, he was more than capable of committing murder. There was no forensic evidence connecting him to the scene, and nobody beyond Lisbeth Palmer identified him as being there on the night of the murder. Bear in mind, this is two years after the event, and she did not actually see him in person. The cops showed her a grainy closed circuit feed of the lineup. Like, so Lisbeth is shown, uh, you know, a video of this kind of confrontation. uh, And uh, the thing is, Everybody except Krista Peterson in that lineup um, is a police or fireman. So, you know, he's already standing out and he's the only one who's not wearing black shoes. So another thing that makes him stand out. And the third thing is that Lisbeth has already been told that the suspect is an alcoholic. And so when she points him out, she says, well, it's clear to me who or it's clear to anybody who in this lineup is. Is an alcoholic, and that's sort of how she makes her decision, and this is why later he Christopher Pettersson is also acquitted, and again that's what I was referring to earlier as being very similar kind of a you know acquitting as that which took place with uh, the the 33 year old.
0: Yeah, and additionally, uh, yeah. uh, Pettersson said he'd mm. actually liked and respected Palme, and he had no reason to want him dead. Mm. But the pressure by then was. Indescribable to close the Palme case. And his trial lasted about seven weeks. And in July of 1989, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But his lawyers appealed, and Pettersson was almost immediately released. And he was then paid £38,000 compensation and kind of eked out a living selling interviews to magazines and TV shows. We do recommend that you try his custom drink uh, called The Killer. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do yeah. is get some Baileys and get some vodka and put a shot of each into a glass uh, on ice. And for additional fun, drink every time I mispronounce a Swedish word and double the shot and drink <laughs> if I get it right. And you will be hammered by the end of not just this episode, but any of the episodes, you know?
1: Yeah. and We'll see what you get up to. Though. Yeah.
0: Um, and that's pretty much it really for peterson although there is this very odd tidbit from a guardian piece on the murder that was published in 2019 they're talking about the uh the Amateur detectives, you know, the gumshoes. And they said these are people who have devoted significant chunks of their lives to finding a solution to the case. The first of them emerged in the wake of Holmier's failed raid on the PKK and were sometimes accused of harassing witnesses and interfering with the official investigation. Many of them used live reenactments at the scene of the murder as an investigative tool. Monson recently described these reenactments to a reporter as a mix between seance and ceremony one of the strangest things I've ever experienced. At one meeting of the gumshoes in 1998, Krista Pettersson reportedly showed up. He drank several rum and cokes, claimed that Palme was killed by a group of right-wing Italian Freemasons with links to the mafia, told sex jokes, and left. So who might these right-wing Italian Freemasons with links to the mafia be? As propaganda do it. Which is yet another stay behind reference. Now, whether Pettersson actually knew anything solid about the links between, you know, the NATO stay behind network and the Olaf Palme murder, that's impossible to say. You know, he may have just done his reading, but let's not forget that Licio Gelli did actually write to a Republican functionary uh, in America after Olaf Palme's murder with the phrase, uh, tell the white rose the Swedish tree has been felled. And in some accounts, the white rose is supposed to be Poppy Bush. But there was one very strange character who kept reappearing in the press and in the police files in the months and the years after the murder. And he was much more enmeshed in a web of stay behind and far right connections. He ended up telling conflicting stories about what he'd been doing on the same street as Olaf Palme that night, what role he played in the attempts to resuscitate him, what he'd said to the cops, and so on. He was a graphic designer for a company called Skandia, and his name was Stieg Engström. At one time, he'd been employed by the Swedish Defense Material Administration, as was the aforementioned Per Avidsen. Engström's best friend was a fanatical Americanophile who, according to the family, did a part of his paratrooper training in the US. This is from a journalist called Stefan Kangas, quote, with his military background and familiarity with the social codes of the upper class from his time in boarding school, Engström moved freely during the 1980s in elite circles in Stockholm, and also amongst those who were openly hostile to Palmé, circles that were often one and the same. He frequented dinners honoured by the participation of diplomats, colonels, and business leaders. In his spare time, he sometimes handed out flyers spewing hate against Olaf Palme and wore pins with Palme caricatures. And more Lee Harvey Oswald references and echoes there. So given the milieu that he moved in, and given his connection to the Swedish Defence Material Association, Engström has now become the prime suspect in the murder of Olaf Palme. The only problem is, he's been dead for 23 years.